Have you ever sort of been around someone or known someone who just kind of, when it comes to prayer, they just rip it to shreds. They just this, got this prayer language and they're just incredibly uh, good at praying. And you can feel, uh, well, man, talking from my own perspective, you can feel inspired uh, as you listen to them and you're like, oh, wow, I'm at, the, I'm at the feet of God. And you can also feel a little intimidated by the fact that they're just so, so at ease with it, so comfortable with it. The language is just so kind of... Uh, majestic at times and, and full of theology and doctrine and all this sort of stuff. I was at a, a gathering with some other pastors on Thursday, on Thursday morning. It's a bit of a PD session, stuff that I have to do. These things always end in prayer. Uh, there's only uh, a handful of us and um, everybody else kind of went first. So I was the last person to pray. So when we got there, I was like, well, you know, what's left for me to pray about? Um, what's what what what's more to say? And I was also sort of thinking, man, I can't even begin to articulate it uh, the way these guys have articulated. You can sort of, when it comes to praying, when it comes to corporate praying in front of other people, you can get stage fright. You can get this kind of comparatonitis sort of issues that that you have uh, with prayer that that can happen. I have a mate uh, who doesn't even need to be praying. He he just talks, just normal talking to you, and you feel like. You are talking uh, to Jesus. Sometimes I just ring him during the week just to get a little hit, feel like I'm uh, you know, ringing up the Holy Spirit. So when he prays, that's what it feels like. The Spirit of God is talking and he's all kind of like, you know, mate, you just, you just got to love them, brother. You just got to love people and just bring them to Jesus. And the, the, uh, That's how he talks. I don't know why I'm doing it. The all-sufficiency and the majesty of him. And he's just going to take care of their souls. And can I pray for you, brother? I'm like, oh, okay. And, and it's like he peers into your soul and he dresses every need that's there. Then when he's finished with that, it's like he kind of puts an Iron Man suit on you and you kind of go out and you sort of think, man, I might be able to do this pastoral gig if he keeps praying for me. Prayer can be both uh, intimidating and it can be inspirational, but it should never be ignored. It should never be neglected in fact the first words of, of jesus response to the disciples when they when they say teach us to pray you know we want to know what it's like to 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 pray like you jesus says well when you pray like this shouldn't this should be we we know we're going to be praying so when you pray prayer is the daily activity of the christian life and yet for various reasons it's also the daily challenge of the Christian life. And that's kind of why the disciples are asking Jesus that he teach them to pray. Pray like he prays. You know, the Bible never actually tells anybody that they need to pray, of their need to, to pray. It never tells us. He's an unheard of novel idea. This is going to blow your mind. It's called prayer. Now, the Bible just assumes that we pray, that people pray. That's what it does. Regardless of our belief in God, regardless of our religious convictions, given the right environments, given the right circumstances, uh, unmet needs and desires, people pray. Tim Keller calls it um, the universal reflex of the human heart. You see people doing this all the time. It's disguised now because we've got mobile phones. So when you're talking in a car to yourself, people now think like, oh, he's talking to someone on the phone. But sometimes we're just having a conversation with ourselves about what's going on in our lives, about the needs that we have, and we're rolling this thing through. That's prayer. But where's it going? 
Who's it going to? The prayer as Jesus describes it gives you a rational, uh, relational reason for the occurrence and the practice of prayer. And it also gives you an object, uh, a destination, if you like, of something other than your limited self, something other than your needy self that is capable of hearing those prayers, capable of listening to those prayers and actually understanding those prayers, feeling your heart, knowing where you're at, and then is able to respond uh, to those prayers with his knowledge and his compassion to address them. In Luke, Luke gives us this presentation of the life of Jesus in, in in, in a way, says that we can have, we've, we've said it all the way through this book, that Luke is trying to give us certainty, certainty of our faith. And a part of that certainty is our, our practice in prayer. Is it just something where we're mumbling words in the front of our car, or are we actually engaged in something real where we are talking to the living God of the universe? You ever thought about that? You talk to the living God of the universe when you pray. Luke, out of all four Gospels, makes it clear uh, the priority of prayer, makes clear the practice of prayer and the object of prayer that is in the life of Jesus. There are nearly a dozen moments of Jesus' prayer life recorded in Luke's Gospel, and, and, and we find moments of prayer in Luke's Gospel that are just unique to that book. You don't find them in any other book. And Phil Riken, in his commentary, points out that Luke tells the story of Jesus as he portrays Jesus as, as, as a person praying his way from Galilee up to Jerusalem to the cross. The point being that faithful intercession, daily prayer, is essential for the Christian life. It's essential for, for being in the will of God. And we find Jesus in Luke 3.21 praying at the outset there at his baptism, baptism which, is, which is kind of the mark of his entry into ministry. Then as Jesus' ministry takes off and, and it increases in its load and his teaching and his healing, uh, we find Jesus in Luke 5 taking time out, trying to get away to pray, you know, uh, work hard, pray hard kind of approach to life. Luke lets us know that prayer underpins Jesus' choosing of his disciples in Luke 6.12. Jesus had this routine of praying, of, of praying early, of praying often. We, we read of one occasion where he prayed at length, you know, in, into the hours. In Luke 9, after Jesus feeds 5,000 people, he is alone with God, praying. These crazy things are, are happening. He's doing all these miraculous things, but he wants to pray for the for the for the life and the souls and, and, and how are his disciples seeing and interpreting all that he's doing and he's praying for them. And then we get Peter's confession of Jesus that he's the Christ. And then eight days later, Jesus is praying again with three disciples and the Spirit comes down to glorify Jesus. And we get this account of the transfiguration there in Luke 8, in 9, 28 to 29. And then Luke 10, which you went through with Andy, I think it was with Andy. Jesus is praying and rejoicing at the return of the 72 from the first you know, gospel mission. And he's in prayer and he's rejoicing in the spirit. And then later in Luke, Jesus is in prayer for Peter. He's praying for Peter's faith, that it won't, that it won't be crushed. And then we find Jesus praying on the cross. It seems that whenever anything of a major importance is taking place in the life and in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus himself can be found 
And he can be observed praying. Like for Jesus, prayer was important. It underpinned everything he did. His relationship with his access to the Father was fundamental to how he carried out his life. And as we come to this passage again today, we find Jesus in prayer. Luke 11.1. 1. Now Jesus was praying at a certain place. And when he was finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Like you're dropping the ball, man. We want to Want to know how to pray? Like John's got you covered. Can you please teach us how to pray? Pray like we see you pray. The disciples have been watching and seeing how prayer underpins, sustains, and empowers the life of Jesus. And they want to experience it for themselves. They want to know that for themselves. They've been inspired by what they hear and see. They've got prayer envy. And they want to, they want to know. They want to be there. What a, what a, what a wonderful. So when, when, we, when we're with people who pray well, we should like, yeah, I need to spend more time with that person and just get their practice into my life. It was a common practice for rabbinical figures to teach their students how to pray. Jews, it wasn't like these guys didn't pray at all. Jews were praying people. They prayed rhythmically, constantly. They had morning prayers. They had afternoon prayers. They've got... Prayers, certain particular prayers for the Sabbath, and then there's prayers for various festivals and holidays that they have. And rabbis made sure that these prayers were performed on point by their disciples, by their students. Get it right. This is how it's done. Make me look good kind of thing. But no one has ever seen the kind of prayer life that Jesus exercised. Far more organic, far more relational. The language is off the chain. As Phil Riken points out, Jesus, in Jesus, they saw a unique passion for prayer. It wasn't a duty. It wasn't a performance. It had this unusual zeal and an unprecedented intimacy. Like he knew who he was talking to. So when they saw it, it was inspiring and they wanted it for themselves. They wanted their lives and their faith to be underpinned, empowered and shaped and defined by the kind of prayer life that Jesus had. And the amazing thing is, is Jesus didn't turn around and say, well, lads, uh, only I can pray like that. You know, son of God, all that kind of jazz. He turned around and said, you bet, you can do that. Let, let, me, let me show you. Let me, let me give you this model. There's a bit of a practical lesson in this all for us, really. If you want to learn how to pray, hang out with people who actually pray. Get up and, and set some time to find people. Set some time throughout the week to go and say, hey, you know what? Why don't we go and pray together? And, and, and maybe do that. Meet, meet before church. We, we've, uh, we've got that little room in there. It's got junk in it at the moment, but we need to address that. Uh, so that this can actually happen. We need to provide the facilities for it. You can meet before church and pray. There's plenty of room here. Meet during the week. Our small groups, you know, are you in a small group? That's an opportunity to gather with people, to pray with other people, to share your relationship and your thoughts and, and all that publicly, prayerfully. That prayer is a community group exercise is explicit in Jesus' response. It's all in the plural, all through this prayer. In this response, it's not aimed at the individual, but prayer is viewed here as corporate, as shared prayer, 
when you, when you plural uh, pray, then, then as you pray, give us, as we pray, give us, plural, forgive us as we forgive each other, plural. It's very hard, you know, to actually pray forgiveness and have forgiveness received when it's just you uh, locked away in, in a cupboard somewhere. Oh, yeah, Lord, forgive uh, Mason for being a jerk. He never knows about it, and, but I don't have to address it or do anything about it, but I'm just throwing that up there. Well, Jesus does answer their request, but he answers it with surprising simplicity, really. There's no great big theological discourse or anything like that. It's incredibly simple. The disciples are to come to God as a child comes to a parent, knowing that God meets their basic needs, that like a parent, God is for the well-being of his children. You know, you find another recording of this style of prayer in Matthew 6. It's a lot, well, it's slightly longer and it's got a few different lines and a few different words. And the different accounts of this prayer let us know that Jesus had a consistent pattern, a, a, a consistent approach for prayer, uh, that it's not a rigid thing. His teaching on prayer is that here's a model. It's not a mantra. Like here's, here's some framework and you, you can personalize it if you want. You don't preach this, uh, pray this like a performance. Here's, some, here's a model. Here's, you, you put into it. These are, the, these are the hooks. Away you go. First, Jesus' model instructs on the object of prayer. The object of prayer is God. Our prayers are directed to God. But as they have seen Jesus pray, God is not some non-personal force. He's not some cold, distant deity uh, we do business with or have to impress or, or kind of beg to get an audience. In another spot, Jesus says, don't be like the pagans who run around and making noise and banging pots and kicking in doors. You don't have to do that to get God's attention. God is to be approached like a child approaches its father. The term for father here is not that intimate term daddy, the term of, a, of, a, of an infant, of a small child that we find you know, the Aramaic word daddy that Paul uses in Romans. That is not uh, the word being used here. Daryl Bock explains in, in his commentary uh, that, that it's more of a, a matured intimacy in this word. It's, it's more of a, an address of a father uh, that has got developed trust in it, developed intimacy, the kind found in the words of, of mature children. Like when kids say things like, Dad, Father, if you like. I'm thinking about going to uni to study, I don't know, archaeology or ballistic science or whatever it is. Uh, what do you think? Or, Dad, I'm looking at this car. What are your thoughts? Or, Dad, I've just blown 0.09 in the breathalyzer I'm down the police station. I need... I need you to come and help. It's, it's that kind of father. It is familiar. It is trusted. There's been relational development and intimacy like that of a father and a child. To approach God like this was, was radical, was, was scandalous. The Jews would not even speak the name of God out of reverence. So now to start to call God father in such a familiar way that that families would call and address each other around a kitchen table was just different 
And this is difficult for some of us because we don't have approachable fathers. We don't have intimate fathers. Our fathers may have even been absent. They may have even been cruel. So we have to retrain our understanding. We have to renew our understanding of what a father is. And we get a picture of what a father's like from Scripture. We, we, we don't get to imagine this stuff. We have to go in and read and learn. And, and through Scripture we get this picture of God as a father who is slow to anger, you know, compassionate, loving, loving, loving. And even when he is angry, angry at, at something, that anger has to be provoked. It's not just, an, it's not just sitting there. It has a reason. And then it's always tempered with grace. It's always tempered with correction and, and, and working toward our well-being. In Scripture, as God reveals himself, we find a God, a Father, this incredible uh, you know, being who put the universe together. He directs all that power, all that care, all that concern towards us for our well-being for our flourishing, for our joy. We have to gain that picture. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, to address God in prayer like this because that's how he understood God. He knew God as a father. And as he prayed to God, he knew the joy of God's presence and the confidence of his commitment to us. And yet at the same time, we approach God as father. Yet at the same time, God is holy. It's very clear. God is distinct and not like any other created person you don't come to him casually you don't come to him you know complacently the privilege of intimacy is wrapped up in humility you don't go to god you know oh let's just pray a prayer to the big fella upstairs you know god is not your buddy he's not your drinking buddy god is a a friend he ain't your buddy you understand the difference here's the tension of christian prayer intimacy and familiarity that is expressed with awe and respect and honor so jesus says after approaching god as father praise him give him glory adoration and he uses this word hallowed hallowed be your name now we don't use that word anymore it's an old fashion word but it's very hard to to work out what it means it's the first part of a two-part petition that recognizes god's character is, is is unlike ours it's set apart from ours it's set apart from sin it's it's not influenced by it that that, that god's character its attributes are of absolute perfection in hallowing god we are recognizing the uniqueness of god coming into his presence of god into the god of the universe in in a, in a humble way in a bold way in, in next week we're going to look at how that humility kind of frames up with boldness there's more tension in this while we approach god as father it's not a peer relationship god is to be remembered and proclaimed for who he is as he's disclosed himself for his holiness his greatness his glory and it's all tied up in his name his name represents all the ways that he's disclosed himself, a name that has been made known through Scripture. So we don't get to guess and we don't get to make it up. We do need to spend time with God's word, though, to understand how we hallow God properly. I like to go to places like 
Job 38 to 40 and Isaiah 40, just, you know, this great picture, or Psalm 145 perhaps. It's part of the reason, as I said at the start of the service, it's part of the reason why we begin our time here with singing. This, this is us, you know, hallowing God, giving God praise as we understand him, this kind of thing. Tim Keller says, To hallow God means to treat God as sacred and ultimate, to hold God as the most crucial and important object of the heart. To hallow God is to hold him as the, the supreme standard of beauty, the ultimate um, place of delight. You hallow God by seeking him first and delighting in him. That's how you know uh, what you hallow. It holds uh, primacy in your thoughts. It holds primacy in your desires. It's where your mind goes uh, when you're not busy. It's what your dreams are made of. It's what your nightmares are made of. You, you dream of something, you, you, hallow it, you want it, it has worth. To lose it would be a nightmare, would crush you. What do you, what do you hallow in your life? If the things that you adore most in your life are not God, then you will only pray, you will only go to God when those things are lost or, or when they're threatened. And then you need God to go and get them back. And how, how horrendous is that? We can only hallow God if we know him for who he is and what he is. His desires for us. We only know that's what's behind knowing him as a father. The second part of this petition is the rule of God. This good God describes, and this rule is described here as his kingdom. Your kingdom come. There in verse 2, would your kingdom come? Matthew says, on earth as in heaven. This is adoration being put into action this is the being transformed by the presence and the power of god through the access that jesus has given us to god and then the the transforming work of the holy spirit in our lives you know the spirit applies the work of christ to our lives jesus says elsewhere no one actually enters the kingdom of god sees the kingdom of god without being born again without coming to see our deep need of, of being rescued from a a kingdom of self, a kingdom where our, our primacy of needs are all about what we want and not God. God is not hallowed there. In the kingdom of God, he is. The kingdom of God is not a political, it's not a, uh, a, a, a nation state, a system of governance. It's not defined by geography. The kingdom of God is where God is hallowed for being holy, where he is approached like a father and he is obeyed like a king. That is first to take place in your heart. Your king, when you pray your kingdom come, you should, your first point of reference should be your own heart. This is not, oh, you know, your kingdom come and get that world into shape, you know, fix it up out there. And your kingdom come into my life, into my heart. And as I encounter that, let me go and share that reality so that it might come into my marriage uh, into my family, into my church, into my workplace, how I interact with my neighbours, all this sort of stuff. This is not a passive prayer. This is a prayer for personal transformation and that the actions from that personal transformation would then go and, and, and influence others. You don't, you're not praying, oh God, magic genie in the sky, please go and fix the world and I'm just going to sit on the couch and do absolutely nothing about it. 
That's not, that's not the picture here. This is God come and transform us and then we, we will go be salt and light and these kind of things in the world. I think that's the picture here. Prayer should change us so that we change our environments. Then Jesus moves on to petition and confession in verses 3 and 4. Uh, so it's obviously not the Lord's prayer, is it? Because Jesus don't need to ask for forgiveness for anything. It's a model of prayer for us. After shaping our hearts with how and who we are praying to, the object of our prayer life, we can now petition God without these things turning into ultimate needs because we've spent time with the ultimate lead. Like you come to God for a new rifle with a beautiful uh, thermal scope, uh, you know, that could become an, I've heard that could become an ultimate need. But if you've spent time with God, he is the satisfier of your soul. We can come to God and confess without drowning in guilt and frustration. Jesus says, before you utter one word of petition or confession, remember how it is that you come to prayer as a child with all the rights and all the privileges that Jesus himself has before God, before the God of the universe. That's, that's, that's how this is rolling as you come in confession and petition. The rest of this prayer falls under three P's. Daily provision, daily pardon, and daily protection. And we, I mean, we really don't need a sermon on that. We do that naturally. We don't need prompting towards these things. But it is good to hear Jesus say that God is a willing listener and a willing provider. He is, that's what this is. He's, he's there to act. Pray to him. Give us this day our daily bread. It is the privilege of the Christian to be after God daily for what we need. Jesus says our actual needs are actually quite simple at their core. Our fundamental needs are like bread. They're simple. It's a model that keeps prayer on our needs and not our greeds. In a little sentence I read in one of the commentaries somewhere. By teaching us to pray this way, Jesus is calling us to daily ongoing dependence of our Father in heaven. So God's not like Costco. I love Costco, but God's not like Costco where you buy everything in bulk and then you just kind of last as long as you can before you go back, you string it out, uh, you, you push as far as you can in your own capacities for as long as you can in your own capacities. Now God sets it up so that you're back each morning, each evening, each moment. That's the model here. Go after God as the one who supplies your needs, you know, moment by moment, day by day. Next week we're going to look at more about how this happens. Look at this parable that Jesus tells at the end of this, at the end of his teaching on prayer, in which he's you to be persistent in prayer, even, you know, even going to God at midnight. And in the end, because of our boldness in prayer, our shamelessness in prayer, our prayers are heard and responded to. It's designed for relationship. It's designed to keep us in intimacy with God. As much as our Father cares for our physical needs here, he cares for, you know, what's the time? What time? No, I better not tell that story. Um, as much as our Father cares for our physical needs, he cares even more uh, for our spiritual needs. And Jesus conveys this sense of priority. We've only got one example of how to pray for our physical needs, this position. Pe pe what's that word I'm looking for? Petition. Uh, but two, for our soul. After seeking God for our needs, uh, we have to. Uh, you know, about what we have to do, um, how in, in his kingdom, as members of his kingdom, the life we have to live, we seek our needs there. We also have the opportunity to daily care for the condition and healing of our souls. 
Here is Jesus inviting us into daily renewal of our hearts by encountering God's ongoing grace. God is well aware that we are imperfectly pursuing and growing in our faith, imperfectly pursuing and growing in our hallowing of his name, in our dependency of him. So struggles and doubts and failures should not be met with crushing shame and self-loathing and absence from the Father but in ongoing daily going to him, in ongoing daily presenting of our spiritual needs, of transformative grace and reassurances that the promises of the cross are not limited ones. Like you don't, you don't outrun that. You don't outsin that. You can't outrun grace. Jesus is taking care of all of our sin, past, present and future. And a daily exercise of prayer like this reminds us of just how good God is toward us. As Martin Luther said, the Christian life is a life of confession. The connection between our forgiveness and the forgiveness of others is not one of condition. Often people read that and go, oh man, if I'm not forgiving others, God is not going to forgive me as if you're in control of that. Like our forgiveness is compliant on our ability to forgive others. That's not what's going on here. This this is more of an assertion. Christians know what it is to have our sins forgiven, met with grace. We know what that is. We know what it's like to encounter Jesus And to have that shape our value, our dignity, and our standing before God. We know now how God perceives us. And to the degree that you have encountered this, is the degree that you will exercise this forgiveness. To be forgiven is is to encourage and nurture you in how you move to forgive others. Now that will not always mean that things go back, and should not always mean that things go back like nothing happened. There may well be ongoing consequences for sin. But it should mean that our hearts are not shaped by bitterness or anger or envy. It should mean that relationships are for well-being of people. That that in relationships people are valued. Forgiveness always springs up from the grace of God and not human merit. That God forgives Forgive sinful people means that we can approach God for forgiveness. And as we experience that, merciful God, we become, we looked at this in James, we become merciful people ourselves. We confess our sins daily to keep our souls healthy, but it would be better if we didn't sin at all. So Jesus' model of prayer ends with a request that God would not lead us into temptation, which kind of seems like, really? At the end of verse 4. This is fundamentally a recognition that we are prone to sin, that we actually enjoy it, and given half the chance, we'd go there. This is not about begging God not to take us through Uh, you know, tempting environments. This is about recognizing that without God's leading, without God leading us anywhere, we would just go to sin. We would just live there. That's all we would do. In this petition, we are recognizing our our need, our continued dependency and delight in God to be more satisfying and more shaping of a relationship 
than anything that's offered anywhere else. So as, as sin tempts us, you would look at that and then look at God and go, no, that's hallowed in my life. That's my delight. Lead me to that. This whole prayer is designed to have uh, the child of God, the member of the community of the kingdom of God, seeking after God for who he is and what he's like. And to have that as a regular rhythm, a regular practice of intimacy in our lives. J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If it's not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means they do not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. How radical that Jesus says we pray to God, the God of the universe, like a child speaks to a parent. And finally, just as we wrap up, as, as we mentioned earlier, all this language is plural. You can, you can use it individually, but it's all plural here. It has in mind not simply an individual's need, but the activity of the church, of the new community of God's Father. Jesus just assumes that we're going to pray together, that we don't just pray as individuals. I thought this morning as we close, rather than me pray for you, we might pray for each other. Now, if you're like me, (laughs) this opportunity is quite intimidating. And if that's you, just sit quietly near the people who are praying and just be inspired that you're being prayed for and listen and learn and hear how others pray and maybe you get confident. So two minutes, two minutes of us praying for each other. Maybe you've got a Bible there and you might want to just say, hey, check this out. Check this out. Let's just read this and and, and remind ourselves of the goodness of God. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and, and be gracious to you.